It's time for Lawyers for Jesus, a show about the dynamic and exciting interaction of faith and the law, featuring the attorneys from the law firm Malkin Baker in downtown Chicago. Malkin Baker is nationally known for defending freedom and for serving the people of faith. And now, Lawyers for Jesus. Hello, welcome to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Whit Brisky, an attorney and partner at the law firm of Malkin Baker in Chicago. We are Christian attorneys who focus on serving the body of Christ with its legal needs. To learn more about us, go to malkbaker.com. That's M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R.com or call 312-726-1243. Should assisted suicide be legal? In a society that stresses autonomy and devalues life, what should Christians do? Today, I'll be speaking with Nancy Valco, a registered nurse, advanced legal nurse consultant, and a spokesperson for the National Association of Pro-Life Nurses. As someone who has worked in critical care, hospice, and other specialties for 45 years, Nancy is well-versed in the legal, ethical, and biblical concerns that go along with assisted suicide and other controversial medical procedures. And I hesitate to uh, to ca- classify assisted suicide as a medical procedure. But Nancy, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me, Whit. Can you describe the current legal status of assisted suicide in the United States? Well, unfortunately, it's not good. Since the first state in 1997, Oregon legalized assisted suicide, we now have nine states in a jurisdiction and that's including the jurisdiction of Washington, D.C., that have legalized physician-assisted suicide, uh, which is an absolute tragedy. Uh, However, and this is an interesting point most people don't know, in more states than not, we have defeated it. I go around the country and speak in various states about what assisted suicide really is and what the law actually says. Uh, I found that many people, including legislators, who everybody thinks knows everything about it, many times they don't carefully read the law. Sometimes they're not even lawyers. So we go through on what the law actually says. And we've been able to defeat it in Massachusetts and Maryland this year. I went to Maryland and did a series of talks, uh, talked to legislators there, and we were able to defeat it by one vote. But in general, most people. Yes, most people do not know that much about it, and there really is kind of a media blackout. Uh, I used to be a reporter myself. I wrote for the National Catholic Register on news analysis, and I am horrified by journalism now, and particularly how they don't cover certain issues. Assisted suicide is one. It is now... um, Compassion and Choices is the big group promoting this, and they're very heavily funded. They're almost as big as Planned Parenthood. They're getting there, and they're down as a charity. Um, But it has been so misinformed. Even the Gallup polls, your your actual Gallup poll that they have is if you believe if someone is in terrible suffering and wants to die and is terminally ill, what do you think? People don't know even the simplest things that none of these bills, none of the laws actually has any kind of suffering or pain as a requirement for assisted suicide. So it's really much broader than the kinds of questions or uh, assumptions that people make about it. 
It is, and now they're increasing it. Um, they're going even farther, which most people don't know about. Uh, for example, Canada, their Supreme Court legalized it in 2015 and left it up to the various provinces to come up with the laws and the procedures and everything. And within a short time, now 99% of the people dying by assisted suicide are lethal injections. Not what people think of as, oh, you just swallow a couple pills, you go to sleep, and then you're gone. It doesn't work like that. And uh, I recently wrote a blog. I have a, a blog, A Nurse's Perspective on Life, Healthcare, and Ethics, where an international group of anesthesiologists who aren't against assisted suicide said the way that it's being practiced now, there's no certainty that you will be unconscious when you die. And they did that by also by studying capital punishment, which, as most people know, has been um, illegal. You know, states have been turning that over, making capital punishment not available. So there's just a whole lot of stuff that is going on that people don't realize. But it's getting bigger and bigger. And with the media, um, they used to call a physician-assisted suicide, but now, after the Brittany Maynard case in California, they now have changed to physician aid in dying, which is much different. And Gallup has found it can cost as many as 20 points when you don't call it suicide. You're listening to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Whit Brisky of the law firm of Malkin Baker. If you missed part of this episode or want to hear other Lawyers for Jesus interviews, visit MalkBaker.com. You can also subscribe to our Religious Liberty newsletter and follow us on Facebook and Twitter for legal updates with a biblical perspective. Today, we've been speaking with Nancy Valco, spokesperson for the National Association of Pro-Life Nurses, about the evils of assisted suicide. Well, I'm going to ask you to be devil's advocate for a minute. Are there any mm -hmm. arguments uh, in favor of assisted suicide, or why would we? Uh, why do people advocate for it? Well, I deal with this all the time, and I've debated like the head of um, Hemlock and all these other people. And basically what they're saying is you have a right to do what you want to do. And if you want it, nobody has to have it. Um, if they're in severe pain, uh, of course you would probably want it, but you need to have it legal first. And they are selling death very easily. Uh, what happens is autonomy, this ability to choose, becomes the most important part of any kind of ethics. Someone once said, if autonomy is the only really important thing about ethics, why do we have ethics committees? It's whatever anybody chooses or their family chooses. And that's a real problem. They talk about it, but I said they don't like to debate me anymore because I have dealt with some of the most severe cases ever. I've worked in a burn unit. I've worked in every kind of critical care. I've worked oncology, cancer patients. I loved it. I've done hospice nursing. And I have never once been tempted to kill a patient. And some of these people do start thinking about suicide. And I've talked to them, and it's interesting. Every time the person has decided against it, when someone listened to them, somebody asked me one time, they said, Why, how can you do this with suicidal people? What is the most important thing you do? And I said, I listen. Mm. You know, I hear the pain. You know, tell me everything. And one woman, interestingly, she was had a terminal condition. She was talking about committing suicide. And, and I, she was not my patient, but another nurse called me in and said, can you talk to her? I'm going to 
talk to the doctor. So I went in, I had a break and I spoke with her and she told me things and we brought up different things and family. And finally I said one thing and she goes, oh my God, I hadn't thought about that. And she changed her mind. And she was like the happiest person in the world. She was like someone who had just survived a plane crash. And But a couple of days later, I was walking down the hall and I was accosted by two middle-aged women. And I, they said, we are going to get you fired. And I said, um, what for? They said, you talked our friend out of committing suicide. You are interfering with her right to choose. Well, and it's, that hard, was before, it's hard to have a right to choose if you... Uh don't have all the information, right? Well, that's true. And that's really how um, how we do it. It's not punitive. I had a gentleman with Parkinson's and somebody, he had called someone and they panicked and said, can you talk to him? And he had severe Parkinson's. He was in a nursing home. And they said, can you call him? I said, sure. And we talked for a long time. And uh, he told me things about his life. And uh, he changed his mind and he called me a month later. He says, I am so happy. I now have a life. People need to be listened to. And I have found, and a UCLA study showed this too, that when people are dying, most of what they want to talk about is their sorrow, how they feel, their families. And uh, a place in California, they did a study and they talked to people who had wanted assisted suicide. And they found that this is what they wanted. And after, instead of just using a doctor, they had social workers and other people talk to them. Almost none of them went on to commit assisted suicide. Oh, that's, that's a great program. Do, does the Bible tell us anything, give us any guidance on these issues? Oh, I think a whole lot. They really do. And when you think about it, um, you have in Exodus, God's word was, you shall not murder. And in Deuteronomy, this day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. And you look at the death of Judas. God wasn't happy about that. That was a terrible thing. And he never asked for repentance. I think when you go through the Bible, it's definitely for life at all stages and at all ages. Well, I, I often think that the, the original sin of Adam and Eve was to be like God and that taking right. over God's control over our lives through whether it's abortion or assisted suicide or any of these other things is really the ultimate, the ultimate and the first sin. It's, it's pride and control when they, even in the limited stuff that we get on the yearly um, report on assisted suicide in various states like Oregon, it's amazing. Pain or fear of pain is way down on the list. What bothers most people is loss of independence, loss of self-control, you know, their bowel and bladder, they're worried about that. It's all about fear and wanting to go before you get too bad. And uh, it's just a really sad thing. This is not some positive thing as I'm going to do things the way I want to do it. It's fear. Brittany Maynard talked about it. Coming up, we'll talk further with Nancy Valco, spokesperson for the National Association of Pro-Life Nurses, about the ethical concerns of legal assisted suicide and other issues involving the protection of human life. I'm Whit Brisky, and this is Lawyers for Jesus. 
Hello, I'm David Smith, Executive Director of the Illinois Family Institute, an independent nonprofit ministry dedicated to boldly bringing a biblical perspective to public policy. Here at IFI, our mission is to support traditional family values, defend biblical truths, and uphold Christian morals. We consider Mauk and Baker our allies in this mission, and we are proud to support them in their legal endeavors. Mauk and Baker is a law firm that upholds Christian beliefs, putting God first. If you ever find your religious liberty and rights as a person of faith under attack, you can trust the attorneys of Mauk and Baker to fight for you. Mauk and Baker has a team of Christian lawyers who seek to achieve justice and advance the gospel through their work. If you have a legal need or question and would like the perspective of a local Christian attorney, contact Mauk and Baker at 312-726-1243 or visit their website at maukbaker.com. Welcome back to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Whit Brisky, an attorney at Mauk and Baker, a law firm based in Chicago which serves churches, ministries, businesses, and individuals in their legal needs. If you missed the first part of this show and want to listen online, go to maukbaker.com forward slash radio. Today we've been speaking with Nancy Valco, registered nurse, advanced legal nurse consultant, and spokesperson for the National Association of Pro-Life Nurses about the sanctity of life. Uh, Nancy, how did you become so passionate about issues involving life, healthcare, and ethics? Well, actually, in 1973, when Roe v. Wade was legalized, I was horrified. I mean, none of us expected it. At the time, I was a trauma nurse working in a state-of-the-art trauma unit. And um, I, somebody asked, they said, what do you think? And I said, I think it's horrible. And I found out I was politically incorrect because some people started yelling at me. What if you get pregnant or get raped or something? And... Um, but what kept me out of the pro-life movement was pro-lifers were saying that if you legalize abortion, it would lead to infanticide and euthanasia. I couldn't believe that. I thought that was terrible. That couldn't happen. And then in 1982, the baby Doe case happened. And that was where a little boy born with Down syndrome and a hole between his windpipe and his food pipe needed surgical closure. It's a common birth defect and always done. But the parents, on the advice of the obstetrician, refused. And the pediatricians were upset. They went to court, and the judge said he sided with the parents, saying they could make whatever treatment or non-treatment decision they wanted. And my husband and I were one of the people who wanted to adopt baby Doe. We said, we'll give him the uh, operation. But they refused all offers of adoption. And lawyers were actually flying to the U.S. Supreme Court for an emergency injunction when the little boy died of starvation and dehydration. He was seven days old. And I was just horrified. I said, how could that happen? And in the paper, they had all the letters to the editor saying, parents have the right. And someone asked me, they said, well, what would you do if you had a child like that? I said, well, I'd operate, of course. And she said, you don't know and you can't say until you've been there. A couple months later, I was there. My third child, Karen, was born with both Down syndrome and a severe heart defect, and which was a shock. We had no idea. And uh, we were told in the operating room that she would die within two weeks to two months. She was inoperable. 
And so I went home and I started researching. I got hold of the Down syndrome, found out where the latest research was, became a medical researcher. By the time I went back to the cardiologist, he said, oh, my gosh, she looks better. She looks fine. He said, let me do some more testing. He came back and he said, well, he said, it's not as bad as we thought. She has an 80 to 90 percent chance of survival with one open heart surgery. But then he said something that really rocked me. He said, but I'll support you either way. And I said, are you offering me a fourth trimester abortion? I said, when does her right to life kick in? She's not even a fetus, for God's sakes. I was so disappointed and horrified. I didn't know if I wanted to stay with that doctor. He assured me he would uh, be good, you know, and do everything. But one thing I found with when my daughter was in for testing, I had doctors and nurses say terrible things. One doctor said, people like you shouldn't be saddled with a child like that. I said, well, who should then? I had uh, one nurse who was all for it. I, when she was on duty, I slept under my daughter's crib. I didn't trust the medical profession. And that's when I realized the pro-lifers were exactly right. And it wasn't even about choice. Uh, as I found out, my daughter was four months old and got pneumonia, was in the hospital. And my pediatrician, I said, I want everything done for her, nothing taken away. And someone tipped me off. My pediatrician had made her a do not resuscitate behind my back. When I asked why, they said, because she felt I was, quote, too emotionally involved with that retarded baby, unquote. And I thought, this isn't even about choice, is it? And that was true. I took her out. We did everything we could for her. I had wonderful doctors, but unfortunately lost her when she was five and a half months old. And I was involved with Down syndrome, became their newsletter. Had I started working on the baby doe regulations with the Reagan administration and writing about it. And I've been very involved in pro-life ever since then. But I knew if they could do it to a baby, they would do it to an older person. By the time I stopped, I retired, I was hearing people in my ICU going, this person needs to die. I said, they're not even asking for it. They said, well, I wouldn't want to live like that. There is a very short step between I wouldn't want to live like that to no one should have to live like that. And I saw what a big problem it is. And it has just infected the medical profession to a large extent. And it's gotten into medical futility. Uh, I've been involved in cases where uh, all of a sudden the doctors go, we're going to take the ventilator off no matter what you say. Um, I was in one where they said, this man will never get better. He'll never get off the ventilator. And the family, you have two weeks to find another place because we're going to take it off. That man, two and a half months later, had a total recovery. You know, Nancy, some of the most passionate uh, pro-life people are the disabled who are concerned that, hey, wait a minute, uh, I may be next. That's true. You're listening to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Whit Brisky of Malkin Baker, and we're talking to Nancy Valco, spokesperson for the National Association of Pro-Life Nurses, about what Christians can do to defend life. Nancy, uh, I want to spend the last portion of the show talking about the dangers for medical professionals, and particularly nurses, of uh, the law allowing assisted suicide. Is that dangerous for, for nurses who practice in those states? It's very dangerous. And uh, recently, and I wrote a blog on it, the American Nurses Association has a position paper 
where they're considering taking a neutral stance. This is how the medical profession has gotten sucked into it because the first rule is do no harm. And Hippocrates said, I will give no deadly medicine, um, no, will not suggest or supply deadly medicine. That's always been there. How do you get them to turn around? Well, groups like Compassion and Choices started talking to different places about like medical societies and the AMA and the nurses about, well, how about being neutral? Neutral is the same as being for it. And the American Nurses Association is considering it, and they came out with guidelines. Uh, Many of us who are nurses complained about it. We wrote things on it. And they were saying that a nurse, if this goes through, a nurse has to be nonjudgmental. And they can get out of it if they have someone else to cover them. But they must make no judgmental statements. You have to be totally nonjudgmental. That's not how we treat suicidal patients. I've worked with suicidal patients my entire life. And um, the only one I lost, as I've said before, is my daughter, who read Final Exit by Derek Humphrey and was struggling with um, substance abuse. And um, she became suicidal and used an assisted suicide technique to end her life. This is what happens. And since that has happened, uh, we see a thing called suicide contagion. And there's a paper that shows, and we've seen this, the regular suicide rate goes up where other assisted suicide is legalized. This is a problem. But as nurses, we're told, do everything. You know, when someone's suicidal, we have all these things we're supposed to do. But apparently, we're only supposed to intervene on some suicides, and that's unacceptable. And it does. I personally have had it where I was almost terminated over an end-of-life case myself. Um, A man who had a problem after surgery, we got him back. He was older, and uh, but he didn't wake up right away from the sedatives. So one doctor came in and apparently said, oh, he's brain dead. I said, no, he's not. He breathes off the ventilator. And they go, well, close enough. I came in to find the man was taken off the ventilator and put on a morphine drip. And they, I was told by the nurse before, the doctor wants you to increase until he stops breathing. And I refused to do it. I went up the chain of command. One doctor said, I don't want to get involved. The supervisor kept saying, oh, it's just a normal oncology dose. I said, I was an oncology nurse. That's not true. And I knew I could lose my job. And I fought it. I fought for this man. And I went home. And two days later, I came back. He was dead. I was called in the office. And they said, the doctor wants you fired. And uh, they said, but you're so good. We'll just give you a reprimand. I refused to take it. They said, well, we'll say we educated you on end-of-life issues. I said, I give lectures on that. So they just let me go. And it became a big thing around the hospital. And some nurses on another floor heard about it. And they came up to me a little later and they said, you made us think. We're so busy doing things and told we're supposed to do what the doctor does. And all of a sudden we had a case like that. And every nurse goes, no. They went to the doctor and said, I will not give that morphine overdose. Nancy, thank you for speaking with us today. Uh, These are great stories. And um, how can people learn more about medical ethics from a biblical perspective and the issues that we have discussed? Well, there is a lot out there. We have a lot of good pro-life organizations, some of whom are sectarian, you know, different uh, religions. Some are like National Right to Life. We in Nurses for Life have a website and a Facebook page 
the website is uh, nursesforlifeoneword.org. And I write about this. I've been writing for since 1982. And I've been writing about it. I do have a blog site. It's www.nancyb is in Victor, ALKO.com. If you have a legal need or a question and want the perspective of a local Christian attorney, contact us at Malkin Baker. You can reach us at 312 726 1243 or at malkbaker.com. Nancy, thanks for speaking with us today. I'm Whit Brisky, and this is Lawyers for Jesus. Gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody.